Thank you, Carlos and Becky. We did actually get a planning permission through this week for the building work, so that's good news. Right, I'm doing my normal thing, and once I've finished speaking here, I'm going down to our other congregation at Ashley Road. I only have to do that one journey today as we, we cancel the 11.30 service. If um, social distancing restrictions are removed in three weeks' time, we will then go back just to one service here rather than the two, because we've got to get more people in, but keep hearing very different messages. Some days it sounds like June 21st, we'll all be allowed to do what we like, and other days we won't, so we'll wait and see what happens over the next couple of weeks. Well, I'm 51 in a couple of weeks' time, and that made this quote from Fleming Rutledge's book on the crucifixion stand out to me. She says, Is there anyone alive over 50 who would not want to live his life or her life over again in order to correct the mistakes, avoid the wasted turns, undo the damage, maximize the opportunities, recover the wasted time, repair the broken ships, restore the lost future. I think I can look back over the past 51 years and say, by the grace of God, there hasn't been too much damage and hopefully not too many wasted turns. But to be honest, if I could wind the clock back 30 years and take what I know now and begin again as a 20-year-old, probably I would. And there are a few things I would definitely do differently and some opportunities I've missed I've taken and some friendships to have fallen aside I'd try and work harder at keeping. And if you're over 50, I expect you probably feel the same. But This is a bigger issue. She goes on. More importantly still, would we not wish to see great wrongs wiped out? All the mass murders, child abuse, destruction of cultures and populations, despoilation of nature, and all the other miseries and atrocities of history rectified and the memory of them obliterated. And yes, surely we would if we had the power, we would. But here's the good news. In Christ, not only will all this happen in the eschatological age, that means at the end of time when Christ returns, but also the power of what Christ has accomplished for us and the whole creation is active in our lives even now. Even now, underlined, bold, capitalized, Christ, what Christ has accomplished for us and the whole creation is active in our lives even now as we put our trust in his remade humanity. Yes, that's what this morning's message is all about, about the one who sits on the throne and says, Behold, I am making all things new. And however old you are and whatever regrets you may or may not have about how your life has panned out so far, this is a message that we all need to hear. Behold, I am making all things new. We've been in a series for eight weeks now looking at the theme of the cross, and this is the final message in that series, and today's theme is recapitulation. And that's not a word that we often use, recapitulation, what does it mean? A couple of dictionary definitions are a brief review or summary as a, of a speech. At the end of a speech, you'd just remind people of the things you've said, or the last section of a musical sonata form, restating the exposition. At the end of a piece of music, the kind of theme gets said again and uh, played again in, in short form to drive it home. So a recapitulation is it's a summary or a restatement of what has been said. And this morning, as we finish this series, it's kind of summarizing and restating the things we've been looking at these past weeks. But theologically, recapitulation actually means more than that. It means what is described in Ephesians 
1 verse 10, where it talks about Christ bringing all things to unity, that Jesus is going to bring all things together. He's going to undo all that has gone wrong, and he's going to lead his people into life. That's what it means. It means, I am making all things new. And this theme really does incorporate all the other themes that we have looked at over these past weeks. So let's remind ourselves, let's have a recapitulation of the story so far of what we've seen the cross achieves. We've seen that Jesus rescues us from slavery. That's the story of the Exodus, that God leads his people out from captivity. We've seen that Jesus' blood atones for us, the theme of the blood sacrifice. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. We've seen that Jesus paid a price for our ransom, our redemption. He has rescued us. We've seen that Jesus has dealt with the verdict against sin, the great assize, the great courtroom drama where the verdict of guilty that hung over our heads has passed from us and Jesus dealt with it and carried it. We've seen that Jesus wages a great cosmic war, that our salvation isn't only a small personal thing, me, myself and Jesus, but there are powers at work in the world and the universe which Christ, Christus Victor, has overcome We've seen that Jesus faces and defeats death. He descended to the dead and he triumphed over death and Hades and he now holds their keys. And Jesus took our place on the cross. He is our substitute. And because Christ has accomplished all these things, he really is making all things new. And so we can say, as Fleming Rutledge does, that the power of what Christ has accomplished for us and the whole creation is active in our lives, even now, as we put our trust in his remade humanity. Now, this is good news for those of us who know Jesus, that we can say all these things are true, and we have found them to be true in our lives, that Jesus has done these things for us. And it's also Good news for those who don't yet know Christ. It's an invitation that you can step into this experience of what has been accomplished by Christ at the cross. And that's what we're thinking about as we finish this series this morning. <clears throat> this is really a story of two trees. There is the tree of Eden, the tree of, uh, that was forbidden to Adam and Eve, but from which they ate. And there's the tree of Calvary, the tree of the cross. We have the tree of rebellion and disobedience and the tree of obedience. We have the tree of death and we have the tree of life. And it's a story of two men, of Adam and of Jesus, who are representatives of the entire human race. And we're going to do a bit of a deep dive this morning into what this means and how this plays out. And uh, we're going to do that by looking at chapter 5 in Paul's letter to the Romans. If you've got a Bible, it would be helpful to have it open in front of you while we're going through this, but uh, the verses will appear on the screen as well, starting at verse 12. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sins. just need to pause on that point and think about what is being said there, the ramifications of what is being said there. Through one man, through Adam, sin came into the world and death came into the world and all are affected by that. 
Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Sin has come into the world and affected everyone. And then it says this happened to those before the time of Moses. What's that about? What's the law of Moses? Well, Paul, is, uh, as he writes his letter, he's writing to a congregation which had been made up of, of Jews and non-Jews. And he's thinking about his Jewish audience at this time who would have been saying, well, what is sin? How do you define what is sin? How do you know what sin is? Is And for his Jewish audience, sin would have been anything which broke the law of Moses. To disobey the law of Moses was to sin. And the point that Paul makes here is that law makes sin worse. He's saying everybody's affected by sin, but the law actually makes sin worse. It's the don't walk on the grass thing, that if you didn't know you weren't meant to walk on the grass, and you walked on the grass, you wouldn't know that you were breaking the law. It's, but the, the, the sign makes it worse, because actually the sign increases the temptation. All you want to do when you see the don't walk on the grass sign is walk on the grass. And when it says 30 miles per hour and the road is straight and empty and clear, you don't want to stick at 30, you always nudge it up a little bit higher than the 30. And if, the, if there wasn't a sign, you wouldn't even think about it. Because there's a sign saying 30, you think, I just want to go a little bit faster than the 30, because 30 seems so ridiculously slow in these conditions. That's what the law does. It makes sin worse. But he says even those who don't have a law are still guilty. This ignorance is no defense in the eyes of the law. You didn't know it was a 30 zone. Well, I'm sorry, sir, but it is. So I'm going to find you anyway. Oh, you didn't know you weren't meant to walk on the grass? Well, you should have known. Ignorance is no defense in the eyes of the law. All humans are born into the realm of Adam, into the realm of death. And there's no exclusions from that. You might have the law of Moses or you might have no laws, but everyone is subject to the reign of death because of Adam's sin. Adam is one representative of the human race. But there is another who is coming. See what it says here. Adam is a pattern of the one to come. Adam is one representative of humanity. But there's another who is going to come and will be a different representative of humanity. Verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life 
through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Hallelujah. Now, there's a lot to get our heads around in what is written here. There are two men. There is Adam and there is Jesus Christ. And these two men represent and shape the entire human story. Through Adam came sin and death. Through Christ came grace and life. And the point is that Christ's action, his life-giving obedience, is greater than Adam's death-bringing disobedience. It's this fantastic old picture from a church in Istanbul. This is Christ pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave. And what that represents is what we're talking about this morning. It's him, make Christ making all things new, recapitulation. Adam and Eve, Adam's sin led to death for us all, but Christ's obedience means a greater life, which can even pull Adam and Eve out of their graves. Christ's power is greater. The power of Christ's life is greater than the power of death brought to us through Adam's sin. One of the interesting things about this character, Adam, is he's obviously so foundational in every sense for our story. But in terms of the Bible, Adam only really appears in the first three chapters of the Bible, the first three chapters of Genesis. We read about Adam's story, read about his creation and about Eve's creation and about uh, their then falling away from God, falling into sin. But after those first three chapters of the Bible, Adam barely gets a mention throughout the whole of the Old Testament. He just kind of disappears. And it's only really when we get to Romans 5 that we see his significance and the significance of what he did. And we really have to understand what happened to Adam to understand what Christ has achieved for us. We've got to see that our personal story is part of this bigger story of the story of Adam and the story of Jesus Christ. And we might, might well say, well, what's Adam got to do with me? This kind of shadowy figure who the Bible hardly mentions apart from the first three chapters of Genesis. And it's, I mean, talk about ancient history. This is really ancient history. What on earth has Adam got to do with me? But what is being described here in Romans 5 is that Adam's sin, Adam's rebellion against God, unleashed this kind of torrent, this kind of epidemic which swept throughout the world and affected everyone. And we've probably got a better idea of what that looks like now than we would have done a couple of years ago because we've experienced something like it through living through a pandemic, that every single one of us has been affected by the pandemic regardless of whether or not we've actually got sick from the virus. It's something that's affected the whole world and affected us all. And Adam's sin is something like that. It kind of unleashed a pandemic of sin and death which has affected the whole human race. Sin and death weren't meant to be part of our story, but because of Adam, they are. Adam's sin determines the fact that we sin. It's kind of genetic. It's just in us now. This is what's called original sin. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. We might read what is written there and think our first reaction might be, well, that's not fair. That's not very fair. I mean, Adam, okay, Adam made a mess of stuff, but why does that affect billions of the rest of us through countless eons of time. How come, I mean, what? The pandemic's lasted 18 months, that's been long enough, but we're talking about thousands and thousands of years and billions and billions of people. It doesn't seem very fair that Adam's sin affected all of us. I was reading, been reading uh, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink 
recently, and this made me smile when I came across what he has to say about this. He says, Hard as this original sin may now seem to be, it rests on a law which governs the whole of human life, whose existence no one can successfully deny, and against which no one registers any objection so long as it is working in his favour. When parents have collected property in one form or another for the benefit of the children, those children never object to appropriating the property thus left them by their parents' death. They do not object to obtaining the inheritance even though they have not earned it. In fact, even though by their scandalous conduct they have sometimes proved themselves unworthy of it and go through it unrighteously, in extravagant wantonness of living. And this is a real kicker. If there are no children, the most remote relatives, the grand nephews and second cousins, put in their appearance in order without any qualm of conscience to share in the inheritance which unknown and neglected members of the family have unexpectedly left behind. I think uh, the Clark twins are worried about their inheritance. It's just how it works. If uh, some relative, even if you don't really know them, if they die and they're leaving inheritance, nobody complains about the fact that you stand to inherit what they've left, if it's working in your favor. And the reality is that for good and ill, we cannot deny our ancestry. The human race is genetically compromised by Adam's sin. But that doesn't mean that we are just passive victims of Adam's mistake. We have an inherited disease, but we've also contributed to it. We're not just victims. We're not just passive smokers who've got cancer because of somebody else's problem. We also sin of our free will. And so we have this problem of compounded sin, something which is in us, genetic, original in us, but something which we freely participate in as well. And that's just who we are. We are children of Adam, and we live under the rule of what he instituted, which is death. But there is now a new realm and a new rule, that of Christ Jesus. Adam's realm is powerful, but Christ's realm is infinitely greater. All people are caught up in Adam's sin. But it says all are now caught up in the realm of Christ. Now all means the whole human race. There is no tribe excluded from the reach and extent of Christ's life-giving obedience at the cross. And it's worth just taking a moment or two to think about that all, because sometimes people get a little bit and so what does this all mean? Does this mean that just everybody is saved regardless of whether or not they believe in Christ? No, that's not what is being discussed here. You have to believe in Christ to be in the all who are saved by Christ. That's already been made very clear in the letter to the Romans, where it says this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. You, you have, to be, have to believe to be part of the all who experience this new life in Christ. But Adam's sin infected all peoples, but Christ's life now extends to all peoples. There's no one who is excluded for because of where you come from or 
what your skin color is or what your family history is. In the message translation of the, of the Bible, uh, he puts verse 19 like this. One man said no to God and put many people in the wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. That is what has happened, that we were all condemned to Adam's realm, but now we can step into the realm, into the life of Christ. And again, this is good news for us all, those of us who know Jesus. We can say, yes, this is true of me, regardless of where I came from, what my history was. And for those who don't yet know Christ, there is nothing that would exclude you from him. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your education is, what your history is, what your family is, what your race is, what your nationality is, what color your passport is. None of that matters. Nothing like that can keep you from life in Christ if you step into belief in him. Jesus Christ makes all things new. His obedience at the tree of Calvary has undone Adam's disobedience at the tree in Eden. Romans 5.17 again, if by the trespass of the one man death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? We were held by the reign, by the rule of death, but the cross has changed it all. Jesus has rescued us from slavery. Jesus' blood has atoned for us. Jesus has paid the price for our redemption. Jesus has dealt with the verdict against our sin. Jesus has waged and won a great cosmic war. Jesus, yes, faced and defeated death, and Jesus took our place on the cross so that now, rather than living under the rule of death, in Christ we reign in life. And as he has been raised to new life, so will we. This means you come to faith in Christ and you're winning. There's that meme that goes around about winning, and often it's very ironic, I'm winning, winning. But we have won. And we've won even if it looks at times like we're losing. This is why as Christians, Christians can be persecuted and Christians can be poor and Christians can be unimpressive in the eyes of the world but still winning because we reign with Christ. We reign in life. If you are in Christ, you will reign with him. All the saints in Christ will rule with him. It doesn't matter how lowly you are, how poor you are, how uneducated you are, how downtrodden you might feel. If you are in, found in Christ, you will reign with Christ. Christ has won the great cosmic battle and he is going to reign over all things with his people. It's a kingly rule which is infinitely more powerful than the reign of death. Christ's victory is bigger than Adam's fall. Christ is making all things new. And we're going to share in that newness of life and that rule with him. And it's so important that we see that he is making all things new, not, not just improved. Not just improved. He's not just kind of polyfilling in a few cracks and painting over and hoping for the best. No, he is making all things new. It's not just that Adam made a bad decision and that Christ made some good ones. No. At the cross, Christ has overcome 
a power and an enemy that had us in its grip, the power of sin and death. And it wasn't just that Jesus went through a kind of a groundhog day where he kept making right decisions until he kind of got it right. No, at the cross, Jesus decapitated the enemy. He defeated sin and death. He plundered them. He descended to the dead. He took the keys of death and Hades. He conquered and triumphed. He won. Sometimes when people have had messy and complicated lives, we talk about them having made some bad decisions, and that's why they're in the mess and the complexity they are, and very often that's true. Bad decisions lead to bad results. But sometimes there's more happening than just making bad decisions. Think about someone who's held by an addiction, an alcohol or a drug addiction. Now you might say, well, probably there have been some poor decisions along the way, and we always have to accept a measure of personal responsibility for the way our lives turn out. But there's more going on than just bad decisions. There's more going on than just poor choices. Actually, if someone is held by an addiction like that, there's a kind of a a demonic power of substance abuse that grips them. And we've all seen this, I'm sure, in people who just are kind of held captive. And perhaps many of you have been in these kind of conversations with people or known people like this. Certainly I have over the years. People who maybe made poor decisions at the beginning, which have led to them being held captive, but they're now captive and they know it and they don't want to be. And they hate it, but they can't escape it. Is They are held by a demonic power which will not let them go. It's not simply a, an addiction. There's something more powerful going on which steals life and destroys. And what somebody in that situation needs is intervention. They haven't got the power to change themselves. They need outside help which will crack the cycle and see them set free from the powers they are held by. And that's what recapitulations means. Christ has intervened and he has defeated the enemy. At the cross, Jesus has broken those powers, those chains, those authorities which would grip us and hold us and control us. And so we now are to lay hold of what life in Christ looks like. Life in the one who is making all things new. And that's what the letter to the Romans goes on to explain. Romans 6, verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is what Christ's life for us means, that we can live a new life. And we have this objective fact of our redemption, that if you are a Christian, you have been crucified with Christ and you now live with Christ. And we see again the significance of our baptism in this, that objective moment, which we can always look back on and say that moment of getting wet, of dying and being raised to new life, symbolically enacted in baptism, that is the sign that I know that Christ has changed everything for me. I now live a new life. There is a complete change of status, which I have experienced and gone through because of Christ. Romans 6.18, you have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to righteousness. Sin and death no longer have power over us 
We've become slaves to righteousness. That's a slavery to freedom. That's like the alcoholic who no longer has to choose not to take a drink. And you know that's how it is for somebody who's been an addict. You come through it, if you come through it mercifully, there's still a choice that has to be made every day. Today, today, I'm not going to have a drink. Today, I'm not going to take some drugs. It's a decision every day. I'm not going to do it today. I didn't do it yesterday. I'm not going to do it today. Slavery to righteousness, slavery to freedom, means that you're freed from it. It's no longer a choice that you have to say, I choose not to today. You just don't want to. The desire for that thing is gone because you're no longer a slave to it. You're now a slave to something different, to someone different. And what has happened to us in Christ is that there's been a kind of an invasion of Jesus into our lives. He takes over and everything changes. And that results in new life. It results in us living life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And also it will result in all things being made new. Romans 8 verse 11 If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. You are being transformed and you will be transformed and not just you, but the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. He is making all things new. He is making all things new. And that must shape how we live now. That those of us who know the power of Christ in our lives, who know the power of the cross, who know what it is to live the life of the Spirit, that must shape how we live now. We're not just trying to slog through this life and get to its end. We're not, we're not even just pilgrims on our journey, as we often talk about. What we're called to be as witnesses, signposts, to what has already been achieved by Christ the Lord. That is our prophetic mission as a church, to be a signpost to what Christ has already done, that life is at work in us now and forever because of Christ's life-giving death at the cross and the power of his resurrection. Romans eight twenty-eight. we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. We're to be conformed to the image of the Son, to the image of Christ. Everybody is being conformed to something, We like to think that we're not conformist, but everybody is. It just depends where you happen to be that you get shaped by and conformed by. My daughter Susie, who's in Brighton, sent some WhatsApp videos yesterday of kind of parties in the streets in Brighton. And the whole thing about Brighton is, oh, Brighton's such an amazing place. Everybody's so individualistic in Brighton. Actually, everybody in Brighton is exactly the same. It's just they're into a certain kind of stuff. They like to be out in the streets of big crowds disobeying the social distancing rules and having a party. That's, that's not individualism. That's just Brighton. In Brighton, you're conformed to what Brighton is like. And in Paul, we're conformed to what Paul is like. Everybody is a conformist, just where you happen to be, that shapes what you're conformed to. And what we are to be conformed to is the image of Christ. 
the image of the Son of God. We're to be like and witness to the reality of Jesus. That is our mission. That's our calling as the people of God in this place. Here in BCP, not just to be conformed to BCP, but to be conformed to Christ and in BCP to witness to the reality of his life at work in us. Think again of that picture of Christ pulling Adam and Eve out of their coffin. Such a great picture. Adam was impotent, failed. Christ is potent. Where Adam failed, Christ has triumphed. And because of the cross, he makes all things new. This is our story. This is our gospel. And this is good news. This is what the cross has done. And we are to delight in the finished work of Christ at that cross. Finished work of Christ, which means that we have stepped into newness of life, no longer living under the realm and the power of sin and death, no longer living just as Adam's children, but now living as the people of God, stepping into the realm of the rule of Christ in which we will share forever and which we experience in part and to demonstrate now to the world around us, the cross of Christ, which has brought us life. Thank you, Jesus. Lord God, thank you so much for your finished work at the cross. Thank you that you are making all things new and that has already begun in us. And Lord, I pray for us. I pray, Lord God, if we don't feel particularly new and shiny today, maybe we feel a bit old and stressed and haggard in our flesh. But Lord, thank you that the reality for us is if we know you, you are making us new. There's that work of life which is being birthed in us already so that even if it looks like we're losing actually we're winning we're reigning with Christ I pray that we would know this and I pray that we would demonstrate it I pray that we would witness it to the world around us I pray that we would be conformed to your image more and more Christ Jesus and display to the world around us what life looks like what it really means to know life in Christ the freedom and the joy the liberty, the beauty, the peace that that brings. Bless us in this and let us be a blessing to our town, I pray, King Jesus. In your good name we ask it. Amen.